Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Elizabeth Woodson, and I'm here with Adam Hawkins. And today, we're going to talk about some of the recent headlines with the Southern Baptist Convention and look ahead to the SBC Convention coming up in June. All right, Adam. Like, I wish that I had—no, I don't wish I had a more chipper introduction because it's not chipper. It's really sad. Uh, The headlines that have come out recently about the SBC and just this independent investigation about allegations of sexual abuse. And so do you want to give a couple of facts and some background for our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to echo you there and in terms of how sad this is, you know, I we've gone back and forth about do we have a guest? What do we do? And I think just you and I sitting down and, and addressing it and, and talking about it is going to be really beneficial. Uh, maybe we'll have a future conversation where we have some others who join in. But basically what's happened, I think a, a lot of people who are in the SBC or related to it are sort of aware that um, the SBC has been struggling since last year with this uh, problem of abuse. It's, they haven't been struggling with it just since last year, but basically it's come to light through an article that was published by the Houston Chronicle that documented hundreds of cases of sexual abuse um, within SBC churches. In a sense, it was its own sort of version of the Catholic um, uh, controversy that came out about priests abusing. This is this is ministers and people associated with SBC churches abusing children, sexually abusing children. And um, there's been this fight uh, within the SBC about what to do about it. And so finally, at the last convention, the members voted to have a third-party investigation. Third-party come in, look at what's transpired and then look at what to do about it. And that report was published. The, the person, the people who were hired were called guide post and um, they did their investigation and then they released the report a few weeks ago. And I think everybody expected it to be bad. I don't think people expected it to be um, as gross and here's what I mean by that, or maybe maybe they did. Uh, what I was one of the things that the um, report showed is one of the biggest concerns that sexual abuse survivors had was: is there some way to warn other churches about people who have committed uh, about abusers? Is there some way to keep a, a list, a database, something to warn other churches about hiring other abusers? Because within the SBC, because it's not centralized, they were it was easy to be dismissed from one church and just go to another and get a job as an even dismissed as an abuser. And the SBC kept saying the especially the executive committee, a, a subgroup of the executive committee, uh, which are people that sort of hold the actual power in the SBC. And they were saying, hey, look, this is impossible. We can't keep this database. And what came out is they actually had kept a database. And they didn't keep the database for the purposes of warning other churches about hiring people. They kept it to cover their own butts. So that 
in itself is insane. Then you had some of what was published were some emails and some other things that had come out. And we discovered that the language they were using to talk about abuse survivors, abuse victims, was derogatory and dehumanizing, um, uh, basically not looking at abusers and saying they're the problem, but looking at abuse survivors and saying they're the problem, they want to burn the church down. And so basically what you had was evidence of, of a cover-up and an attitude of dismissal and even derision towards those who'd been abused. Um, and and so you've seen some headlines come out. I w- I'd like for you to sort of fill in gaps that I'm making, but you've seen headlines come out lately. And I think people were expecting a reckoning, but I think this could be uh, a death nail. I-, I mean that. I think it's that serious. For a lot of people, they're probably looking and going, is there anything worth salvaging? Um, any any facts that I've left out? I mean, there's some legal things and yeah. we'll get into that, but any just kind of on the face of it? No, I think you summarized it pretty well in this uh, independent, um, you say guidepost? Yeah, I think that's what They gave recommendations. Right. Um, both recommendations that are structural and would require kind of a change of culture in the SBC. We can get to that mm-hmm. uh, in our conversation, but just to, it was just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm devastating and sad maddening yeah infuriating right yeah yeah like a a righteous anger Mm -hmm. of people whose lives have been traumatized uh and a concerted effort to not do anything about that Mm -hmm. um and i don't have the best uh kind of knowledge or background with the sbc and whenever that happens uh in a conversation I try to go find somebody who does. Mm -hmm. And so one of the podcasts that I listened to in preparation for our conversation, Adam, was the conversation that Russell Moore had with Rachel... Den Hollander. Den Hollander. Right. After you listen to us, go listen to them. Right, right. (laughs) Um, But it was super helpful to understand, okay, I'm a church member. If you're a listener, you may or may not be part of an SBC church. But the question is, why should I even care about what's happening? Mm -hmm. And what can we do with it? Right. And one question that she brought up um, that I would love to hear your thoughts on, Adam, is what we see is, at a minimum, people didn't care about sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And she talked about how our ideas drive our actions And that part of this reckoning or part of what needs to be addressed is the truth of why don't, why aren't we moved by these things? Why don't we care? Why don't we take them seriously? And not in a simple way, in some ways that over decades, ideas have been written down and preached on that have created a culture where something that should alarm us doesn't. Right. Right. I think, you know, when I first was looking at, and I, and I uh, you know, how I always do, guys, I get there by tangential thinking. But I, <laughs> you know, when I first looked at what people were saying, uh, what the, when the notes came out, so I don't know if you guys remember, but, or if you remember, Elizabeth, but last year, one of the big fights was about, hey, let's form this committee. Let's look through the stuff. Let's form this third party investigation. And then the, the executive committee basically said, we're not going to do that. Yeah. And there was this breakdown in parliamentary process where at first people were like, wait, why is the executive committee 
failing to carry out the wishes of the messengers. This is all like SBC world stuff. That's not, that may not be that interesting, but it's basically a breakdown. And it was like, all of a sudden people are like, wait, maybe none of this works anymore. Maybe the SBC is broken. And the big fight was, should we let this third party look at our attorney client privilege emails? Yeah. And they said, we don't want to do that because it could open us up to liability, et cetera. Right. And, I think looking at that, what you saw was, I think there were, they were afraid because what you saw was the callousness, what you're talking about, the callousness. They just were not moved by, it wasn't a reaction of, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that this has happened in SBC churches. What do we do? It was, oh my gosh, this happened in SBC churches. How do we protect ourselves? And uh, to your point, I, I can I can understand like there really is some difficult philosophical questions about denominational life in here and here's what I would say I can understand a first impulse if you're I tried to put myself there if I'm an attorney one there's a couple people named if I'm on the executive committee and somebody says hey there's been lots of abuse what do we do about it I can understand thinking philosophically it's like okay we're decentralized we have no authority over other churches we don't ordain their yeah. ministers or pastors like in other words, if this happens in another denomination where they're like Presbyterians or another denomination where there's high centralized control, it's a lot easier to kind of go, well, we'll remove them or whatever. And it's like the SBC doesn't really have those levers the same way. And then the next question would be, if we start ex- exercising centralized control, then what can happen is we open ourselves to all kinds of liability. I can understand that for the first time you have this conversation, that being part of the thought process. What I can't understand is why the second conversation wasn't, hey, we need to bring this to the messengers and we need to vote about what to do. Instead, it was, let's circle the wagons and not have this conversation. So to your point, they cared less. The priority was not about helping those who have been hurt by those in power. It wasn't about... They did not care. I mean, I think some people are like, what do you mean they didn't care about sexual abuse? Maybe another way to put it is they didn't care about it as much as they cared about preserving the status quo. They yeah. didn't. And why don't we? Why Why doesn't the SBC? I think it can be oversimplistic to say they're afraid of losing power. I think it can be oversimplistic to say that, I. yeah, I don't know. I think the honest answer I have to that is I don't know. I, I don't know why what I want to say is probably not helpful, and that's that it f- it felt when you saw it like a little old boy's networky to yeah. me from the outside looking yeah. in. And I think maybe because um, they didn't think if this was my daughter, if this was my wife, mm-hmm. if this was my son if this was my be and and instead they must have distanced it these are things that happen to other people in other places well i mean what do you think yeah you know i think what we saw with that particular meeting was the fruit of years and years and years and years and years of distancing from an issue for various different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so like you said, Adam, Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen in our church. Those are not my pastors. That doesn't happen um, to my people. And so that happens to other people over there. It's not that big of a problem. Um, 
uh, we, at my last church, we had uh, sexual abuse training as church leaders. Right, us too. Yeah. And they were like, you cannot look at someone and determine whether or not they're a predator. That's right. But we have this idea that, oh, I can see I can see that in a person. Right. And all the people in my church look, and this is really simplistic and not speaking to the grievous things that have happened and not trying to justify it, but the dynamics of cultural dynamic, cultural realities. And so you have the distancing, right? This doesn't happen here. It's not that big of a problem. I don't know anybody. Um, but it also is, I think, how we think about, you know, how women are viewed through the lens as either we are a sexual danger or we are a sexual object that exists for the pleasure of our husband. Mm. Um, and how that normalizes, or even I remember growing up with like purity culture. And so we're taught as women that someone else's sexuality is my problem. Mm. Like I'm supposed to keep someone else from sinning, uh, someone else who has a lust problem. And so that normalizes certain behavior towards women. Mm. And so when it happens, and these are things that uh, Rachel and Russell were talking about, uh, but this idea is about men and women, how they interact, how that relates to sexuality and sexual sin and sexual perverseness and how that all comes together to create a dynamic in which we think a certain way about women and view women a certain way who say they've experienced sexual abuse at the hands of a church leader or a pastor. Mm. Um, And what, to me, the moment calls for is we have to go back and look at that Mm. because how are we training pastors Where's the breakdown when either you don't take it seriously or you don't know what to do with it when someone does tell you they have a problem? I think that's another part of it. You know, I talked to one SBC professor and he was saying that he was reading a book that talked about so many of of our ideas are filtered through the lens of the metaphors we operate out of. And you were just talking about a few metaphors. This, the, the, a woman is a temptress, right? That's a metaphor. But he was saying what happened in the SBC is that years and years ago with the conservative resurgence, basically that the main metaphor that those guys operated out of was wartime. Mm-hmm. Everything's war. Yeah. And if you listen to the lang- how you identify people's metaphors is you listen to the language, right? Um, and so it's like, we need to fight. We need to fight against this invasion yeah. of other ideas, et cetera, right? And, and I'm not speaking uh, about that. I know there were so many great things that came out of the conservative resurgence, mainly that the only mainline, meaning Baptist, the only mainline denomination not to slip to liberalism was that Baptist convention. And the reason was because of a lot of the things those guys did. But what they realized was that they were, well, what this professor was saying was they ended up operating in wartime, a wartime mentality. And I think in some sense, if you think about it that way, that if the main metaphor you're operating out of is temptress, but I think another one would be kind of wartime, then when you're met with a problem of any type, you don't see it as you're not operating out of, uh, of the metaphor of family. Yeah. You're not operating out of a metaphor of sin and grace. You're not m- operating out of these metaphors. Because if it's a family, you're going, oh my gosh, what do we need to do in right. our family to fix it? You know, oh my gosh, my sister is saying something happened to her. Instead, you're operating wartime and it's like, here's a problem. How do we solve the circle the wagons? Other, us versus them. It turns into a problem to be solved, an adversary to be vanquished, a person who is looking to burn 
I don't know if y'all you've seen this language, but it's like they want to burn the church down. That's yeah. wartime language. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to me to think so many of these men on the executive committee spoke about this problem in terms of a wartime mentality and or a wartime metaphor. And um, it's deeper than that. I, I don't want to... Th- yeah. But there's something there. You uh, know? There is. And yeah. I, I think you see that wartime mentality really when any issue that is brought to criticize a church in a way to help the church be more beautiful. Right. But it's like, you're against the church, you're our adversary. Exactly. And we're going to collectively try to bring you down to protect the front. Right. Like, we're here to protect the front instead of saying, okay, maybe right. we're wrong and we need to um, repent and correct the yep. way that we're doing ministry and holding people accountable. Um, it is, I, I feel like we are in a moment mm-hmm. in American Christianity or evangelicalism that is a turning point mm. where we will and are examining the past, like what you talked about, this metaphor of wartime, how we have operated, uh, the ideology we've operated out of and saying something hasn't worked and how do we move forward? Mm-hmm. And as I think about what it means for the average person to make sense of what's happening with the SBC, um, you know, to be in a place of lament yeah. and just grieving for the victims. Yeah. Like just grieving for people who have spent decades of their life trying to fight for this moment Mm. and seeing truth that was worse than they could have ever imagined Mm -hmm. and to lament and grieve for those whose lives have been traumatized and the family, Mm. friends and family that are, have been with them in this fight. Uh, And as we move forward, what does it look like for us to be people who take sexual abuse in our churches seriously mm-hmm. and do not allow our churches to be places where abusers can hide mm-hmm. and prey on congregants because our church doesn't care about it? Mm-hmm. Kind of what are some of the things as you pastor mm-hmm. a church, Adam, and you have had to lead a staff mm-hmm. into navigating these issues? Because it's not just Sunday morning preaching. It is counseling, it is care calls, it is equipping small group leaders, um, it is being willing to tell the truth about people you really love, but who have habits that are really sinful. Mm -hmm. Kind of how have you all stepped into that, to that space, that really complicated space? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is any, just backing up and maybe talking about a little bit, the first thing is just developing a curiosity about what you don't know, developing a curiosity about if somebody comes and says, hey, I think this might be missing, instead of reacting immediately in the defensive. What I would say, and I mean this lovingly, a lot of times congregants know how to put their finger on the problem, but they come with solutions and many times they don't have the right solution. I'm yeah. saying that with all due respect. Um, but they do see the problem. Yeah. And I think just in general, what I would say is the first thing you need to do um, is recognize that this is a problem. And then the second thing you need to do is go and find people who know about this. Because the truth is probably for a very long time, pastors weren't trained about this at all. And I don't think pointing the finger at them and being like, it's, you know, like coming down on them, but saying, hey, we're not going to 
holds you responsible for the fact that you weren't trained. We are going to say, though, that now that you know this is a problem, you're responsible for getting trained, right? And what that means is you don't just come up with things on your own. And I get it. Like, for a lot of pastors, they're not part of bigger churches that have a lot of resources and all those kind of things. But trying to find places and ways and whatever, people you can talk to. Many of us have people in our congregation who are counselors or whatever. And I think just asking the right questions. And then I know even the SBC put out, I think Rachel Denhollander yeah. was a part of this, but put out a um, thing a Caring couple of years well. ago, Caring Well, which is a resource that's free yeah. that you can at least read through and familiarize yourself with. But what I would say is like, we, we took it seriously because we said there's, first of all, like, and being honest with our own stories and having a really strong culture of recovery in the first place, you couldn't turn a blind eye and say, that's the kind of thing that happens out there. Yeah. <laughs> because it's it's not. It happens everywhere. In fact, what's really strange and, and um, sad about the phenomenon of sexual abuse against minors is that it strikes every culture, every race, Every belief system, it's there and it's prevalent pretty much uniformly, which if we're Christians, that should be really heartbreaking to us. Um, But in saying that, you need to know that it's there. Whether you want to believe that it's other or not, it's in your church. And then again, I think for us, what we did was we got trained. We hired outside consultants and people to come and say, hey, this is how you can make ministry safe. And then this is how you can counsel people. You can help when somebody tells you a story of abuse. This is these are missteps. These are not missteps. And so, um, and then, you know, you just kind of dive headlong, but here's what's hard about that. And I'll just be really honest. If you're a church that does this, no one's going to do it perfectly. If you're a church that does this with just a modicum of, I don't know, responsibility, uh, if you just talk about it in the open, there will be a lot of stories that come out and you'll just realize more and more and more what you don't know. So again, um, I think a really great first step, recognize it's a problem, a really great ste- second step, find people who know about it and then can train you. And then finally, um, develop resources, like develop contacts with people that you could yep. send a congregant to or like like a counselor. Yeah. I mean, just speaking plainly, like who's a counselor I can send somebody to? Um, yeah. So those are some some first steps. Any? What about you, Elizabeth? I mean, you worked at The Village, which is a big church that did this, that trained and did all those kind of things. What What did you see? Yeah. Training to me was just a really huge portion. Right. Um, and so that Caring Well resources are free. Yeah. And so they have workbook and videos because you you think you know, mm-hmm. but you have no idea. Right. And you need to learn from a trained professional who has experience dealing with these issues, whether it is a minor or it's an adult, male or female, mm-hmm. um, and how you should respond, what the law says about what you need to respond. A hundred percent, yeah. You know, and so that we would, because sometimes people, you know, you might be scared about what you might find or I'm not equipped, I can't handle that. Right. The Holy Spirit gives us power to do all the things Mm -hmm. and that we would have courage to be a community that protects one another. And so even individually, that we we can talk about uh, training for church leaders, but individually as a church member. right that you need to be proactive about learning about this and to enter into conversations about ways that you can help support your church on this topic. I mean, one of the, just for people listening to who might be in some smaller churches, one of the best things you can do is just start to erect some boundaries around your children's ministries because that 
if somebody is looking to prey on children and they come in and there are screening questions and you have to watch a background video and you have to have references, those three things will deter most people. And that it's like, you know, learning that, right. It's like, and, and yes, there are other instances and there's a million other things and the world's broken, but to just to take some small steps can really help protect your people. Um, so I, I, you know, the other big thing though, from a convention standpoint is I think they need to adopt whatever measures that people like a Rachel Denhollander or whoever else is out there telling them like, Hey, this is how you can be at the forefront of this issue. This is how you can make sure. And honestly, the things that we were seeing sex abuse uh, survivors ask for, like keep a database and share it so that people aren't hiring. Those small things don't, you know, offer some training, et cetera. They're not, I mean, honestly, the things I saw weren't earth shattering. I wasn't like, what? I was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, was that your It is. They are recommendations that are comparable to any organization. Because like you said, Adam, this issue isn't just centralized to the church. Right. It is in, it's all over the place. Right. Sadly. And so how do we use approaches that we know work mm-hmm. and have been used by people to uh, a measure of success to protecting the people in their congregations? Right, right. Let's say you're in a church and you don't have the ability necessarily to like, I'm going to enact this new policy mm-hmm. tomorrow or something. What what advice do you give a churchgoer? Because like, I think when we talk about ways to respond to this, lament was a word you said. Like, I think there are some ways to respond to this that could really help and really help your pastor out, really help your pastoral and ministerial staff out. What What would you say to just a church member who's concerned about this, who's concerned about maybe their church is in the SBC and they don't... What kind of advice would you give to them? I know that's a hard question, but... <laughs> I probably would start with... Uh... Ask whatever ministry leader that you are closely connected to about this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, ministry leaders are usually inundated with a a lot of things to do and not that many resources. And so if you come with a resource, (laughs) (laughs) you come with some help, you come with a, hey, I read this book. Hey, I talked to this person. Hey, this counselor centralizes on these things. That's just always helpful. Right. Um, But I would talk and to see what your church is doing. That's good. And to keep talking respectfully right. uh, until you get answers. Right. Because you want your pastor and your church leadership to be in a place where they are addressing these things. And so talk to whoever you're closely connected to and uh, keep hanging out with them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, I think there's these initial reactions, and I'm not going to pass judgment on them, but I can say that some of the reactions can be really hard. If you've got a pastor who's already overworked and overwhelmed, um, who's not... Uh, you know, who has read this and is as infuriated as you are, mm-hmm. and you come to church and you say, if you don't leave the SBC immediately, I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, I get that. One, I get that. But also, I think just to, for all of us to kind of take a deep breath and say, what's going to be the kind of change? Because you have people like Rachel Denhollander who is staying. Yeah. And that's curious, you know? You need to ask the question, why does she feel like it's worth staying? And I'm not saying... A lot of churches are going to leave, and that's going to be the right decision. And a lot of churches are going to stay, and that's going to be the right decision for Mm -hmm. them. So I think one of the things I'm thinking through just out loud as I talk is just to say, um, I think your, your 
ministerial staff, your pastoral staff, your elders, they want to hear from you. Yeah. They do. And they want to hear from you on this. And they want to have a discussion, key word, with you about this, a dialogue. Many of them are as lost as you are yeah. in terms of this conversation. Mo- he- Surprise, most most of us don't sit on S, on SBC committees and executive committees mm-hmm. and all those kind of things. And so, you know, they're finding out at the same time and yeah. processing it at the same speed. And so I, I just, I, I know, a, here's what I know a lot of leaders are saying, and I'm, I'm curious about what you're, what you think about this, Elizabeth, but I know a lot of leaders are saying there's the next convention's coming up. Mm-hmm. It's coming up in a couple of weeks yeah. from the date of this recording, mid-June, let's say. And I know a lot of people are kind of waiting to see what happens before Mm -hmm. they make strong decisions. Um, You know, this is, I'm going to ask a hard question to you and I'll answer it too. But do you think there's anything worth waiting to hear? Like what would, what, what could you hear from leadership there that you think would be a really positive move and a really, um, the appropriate response? Ideally, you hear that there's going to be an overhaul where they're going to take all the recommendations that were given. Right. And they're going to do an overhaul of structure. Mm-hmm. And they're going to enforce culture. Uh, if they do all the things that are suggested, you and I both know that change takes a really long time. Right. And so if someone's waiting, I mean, I, I think you want to see is the place at which I'm connected to moving in the right direction And that gives us a sense of hope, that gives us a sense of stability, that gives us a guide. But this is a moment in which the responsibility rests with each church, Mm -hmm. each leader, and each member. Right. Um, Because it's easier for us to change the ecosystem that we're connected to, because it'll take a lot of time for those changes to trickle down to individual churches, and we don't have that kind of time. Mm -hmm. And so it is whatever convictions you have about what it means to stay or leave and whatever your leadership does, that is, I think, your business. Mm-hmm. But what you should be concerned about is what am I going to do in my space, That's with my church, in my community, mm-hmm. you know, with the churches that are connected in your community to work with the local officials and the agencies that are advocating for victims because our church needs to be a safe place. And I think that that needs to be at the forefront of everybody's mind maybe even more so than what the SPC is going to do with the convention. Yeah, that's really good. That's a really good point. And I know I'm thinking about individual church members. And I remember, I don't know if you remember, when we first got trained on this years ago, and some of the training videos are just really difficult to yeah, watch. Yeah, they're see. really hard. And you know, you you leave the training and you think to yourself, I'm never going to let my kid go outside again. That was kind of like the joke, you know, and the train, the people training even kind of joked about that a little bit. And I think for a lot of people who are first reading this, Mm -hmm. that's kind of their response. Like these men don't care. And it's as prevalent as this. And they had a list of 700, I think it was 700 names, which is just crazy, crazy that they wouldn't, yeah. That they wouldn't share. I just, anyway, sorry. Um, you know, I think we can, the fear, Yeah, the fear can come here. And um, I, I, again, I think there's a range of emotions that are, are all very appropriate to have, obviously. Um, but I think not stopping having the conversation, to your point, 
is really good because you can get stuck if you just leave the training and you're like, my kids are never going outside. It's like, that's probably not good. And they even said, these are people who are really, yeah, yeah. and they're like, hey, that's that's going to, that's the probably the the right or just the, that's the response everybody has. But then you got to move forward and you have to figure out how to live your life and you got to take this information and be the best parent, best yep. church member, best church leader um, that you can given the information we have. And so I think the only way uh, to keep moving forward, to not be paralyzed by fear and not be uncomfortable and then do the, the disordered things we do when we're uncomfortable, which is either dismiss or yep. overreact or whatever, is just to keep having the conversation, keep having it with your leaders, keep having it with your other community group, your family, whatever it might be, uh, and seek out resources. And then for those who have been abuse victims, um, I think just so carefully saying that God loves you and cares for you and that um, there are people out there who love and care for you. And that one committee's horribly sinful response does not encapsulate uh, the church as a whole, capital C church's yeah. response to you, and absolutely does not communicate God's heart to you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause what you see with this, like this is the end result of years and maybe even decades of advocacy by victims right. in the SBC. Right. And there can be moments along the pathway of change when you believe that something needs to move in the right direction, significant thing. And you're like, this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And I hope in this moment that people also see that justice comes and advocacy works mm. and that gives us the hope we need to keep pushing forward mm. because it's easy to get discouraged in the middle as you are looking, okay, i am got to go back to my church and how do I handle this? And this feels to be too much. It's that it's one step at a time, one foot in front of the other and change happens. And that change is powered by a God who loves us more than we could love ourselves mm. and that he grieves for his children who've experienced trauma because of somebody else's unchecked sin Mm. Um, and systems that are established or upheld that don't check that sin Mm. and protect the abuser and not the abused Mm. that in the midst of all of that, that we're here at this point where this report has come forward and what it was in the dark is now in the light. Mm. And as grievous as it is, and it is grievous that now we are in this moment where we can move forward and nobody has any excuses mm-hmm. that to do the right thing. And so you know, for, for the victim, for the person who's really passionate um, and they, man, will this really do anything? There are other issues. We could sit here and have the same conversation. Sure. It is that we are people who fight in love and maybe not use the word fight because of wartime language, but <laughs> um, that we stand for other image bearers. Mm. And we stand when it's inconvenient. We mm-hmm. stand when uh, we don't see the response we want to immediately because what we believe in is more important than how we're okay with being rejected. We're okay. The people matter. That's right. And that it takes time. But what we see is that victory does come. Mm. Um, and this moment not might not feel victorious, but I think it's a moment in which it's an opportunity for the church to do better in a really significant way. That's good. That's really good. Well, when I was going through this, I was thinking of a, my seminary professor who was like, when you talk about the church, talk about we, not them. Mm-hmm. And how what we see is 
that we're all capable of doing grievous things mm. but for the Lord. Amen. And that what we see is, are we willing to be humble enough? Like we see men who did horrible things, mm. um, but those men are infected by the same sin problem that we are. Right. And so what lesson can we take as people of walking in humility, of not protecting others before we protect ourselves? Like what can we learn in a way that allows us not to say them and us, but we as a church, mm-hmm. um, because they are a part of the community of God. Yeah, I think you're right, Elizabeth. You need to speak in the we. And what sometimes can happen when we talk about this is um, losing sight of what the gospel has to offer. And I think what I would say is part of the SBC covering covering up. Mm-hmm. They deprived abusers a chance for, I mean, um, abuse victims, a chance for their voices to be heard. They deprive them of a chance for healing within the church, seeing the church as an ally and receiving the love of Christ. They also, to their shame, deprived abusers from the healing power of the gospel by being brought into the light. In other words, no one wins, that's again, bad metaphor language, but no one heals yeah. When all this is covered up, it exacerbates and enables the problem on the side of the abuser and it re-traumatizes, reinforces uh, a shame language and much worse to those who have been victimized, right? right. And so uh, it's actually a failure of gospel imagination to know that you can lose for a purpose. Christianity, I heard somebody saying Christianity is not about winning. How do you convince people that Christianity is about losing for a purpose? Jesus goes to the cross and loses his life for a purpose. It's like you so easily could have looked at the life of Jesus as a committee member and said, we're going to lose. Yeah from an institutional perspective so that one abusers are offered the chance of true repentance and healing, whatever that looks like. And abuse victims are offered the chance of being surrounded by the love of Christ and offered the love of Christ and hope and healing. And instead you take that away. So I think the, we can even include, as we talk about the, we can even include to your point about we're all sinners, but for the grace of God, there go. I can include that, the gospel message of hope, even to those who have committed the most grievous of sins. The second part um, that, that we were just talking about. And I want to say is I think I've heard arguments for leaving the Mm -hmm. SBC. I've also heard arguments for staying. And I think it's important just a couple of, I think it is important to say, I think either options possible, you know, or or, are reasonable. And what I would say is one of the best arguments, and I just want to throw it out there, one of the best arguments I've heard for staying is that we have a chance to own and be responsible and to help solve a problem and to help make sure victims get the help they need, whether that's monetary compensation or counseling or whatever it is. And we we have the, the responsibility to fix this, especially if you've been a part of the SBC. If you are a SBC church who has participated and you're, you culturally identify all the markers, however you come to, to identify as the SBC, (laughs) funny question. But, uh, if if you, if you see yourself as an SBC church, there's something about that. I, I also heard, um, a pastor say from the Anglican church, which was really interesting. He was talking about the virtue of taking responsibility for sins that are not 
yours, but that you're a part of in a sense. And because of their church polity, right? A lot of times it's like something happens in the diocese. Well, there might be 10 churches in the diocese or whatever, but you as like a church leader have to be like, Hey, even though that happened in our, you know, whatever church over here, uh, we're all collectively together saying we messed this up. We need to fix it. And there's a virtue in that somehow. And, uh, I, I thought that was interesting. I just thought there there was something to that. There was something godly to that. And so um, even if you're kind of like, well, this isn't, you know, I, this wasn't in our church. I get that this is, but we're an SBC church, but this wasn't in our church. Maybe there's something to saying, Hey, we're going to be a part of the solution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at corporate repentance, uh, you see that in scripture Yeah, of this, we, have sinned, even though I didn't do it. Right. But I'm a part of a community that has covenanted, if that's the word. Right. Um, to the Lord. Right. And what I hope we see is more of that communal identity come forth in the church mm-hmm. when it comes to we have messed up, but we also want to be here to take responsibility and move forward. Because uh, it is, if everybody gets off the boat, you know, and also, where are you going to go? Yeah. Because, and I'm not saying that um, this particular conversation about sexual abuse uh, is present in this way everywhere. Right. But churches having problems that are rooted in the sinfulness of their members is what you will see in every church. Right. And so, how can an acknowledgement of what does it mean for me to be here to help build up and that building up process? is the long-range vision. Mm. It's not a short period of time, right? but it does and can happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This podcast is made possible because of a team of people behind the scenes. Chris Dare, Chelsea Conway, Mandy Page, and Brad Weigel. We couldn't do it without them. If you're a follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. You can also support us on our patron page, Check the show notes for more information. See you next time.